turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. That's E-N-S-C-A-P-E-3-D.com. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. S.K. Ghosh, the principal at S.K. Ghosh Associates in the Chicago, Illinois area. So S.K. is an expert in the field of seismic design. So he is a structural engineer. He got his bachelor's degree in civil engineering and then a master's and PhD in structural engineering. And he has served as an expert in the field for many years and done a lot of research and investigating into the impacts of seismic events. So he has traveled the world studying the damage and doing forensic work with earthquake design. And he has also authored several books. He has over 200 research and technical papers out there and has put together approximately 50 technical seminars. So I was first introduced to Dr. Ghosh, oh, probably 20 years ago. He was putting together a seminar for seismic design, and I found it so informative, something that is I would say probably one of the most complicated things in structural design being the seismic design part. He was able to kind of take these code concepts that seemed very abstract and boil them down to tangible, executable things that we as structural engineers could do. So I found that very informative and have followed his work since and thought that he would be the perfect person to kind of boil down structural engineering, specifically seismic design, and talk about new code developments. So he is very active in ACI which is the American Concrete Institute, and also in ASCE 7, which is kind of our structural engineering governing document that ties into the IBC for structural design. So he, like I said, has been so influential in developing and leading the charge forward on these code developments and new codes. And the ASE 722 just came out. It won't be implemented in into actual 
design until jurisdictions start adopting it, which probably won't be for a couple of years, but the document is out, which means that we as structural engineers have new information on the table that we need to start dissecting and diving into. So I thought this was so informative to kind of learn about those updates, the new advancements in seismic design. Dr. Ghosh also has recently, actually just a couple of weeks ago, got back from Turkey where the devastating earthquake occurred in February of this year, 7.8 on the Richter scale, just a lot of damage, a very, very sad situation. And we didn't really get into the humanistic side of it, which is very extreme and sad. So we just kind of focused on the structural engineering side of it. So with that, I will hand it over to Dr. Ghosh and we will get into our conversation. SK, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> awesome. So maybe first, let's just dig into the code a little bit. So ASE just released the 722 code. So for those of you maybe not familiar with the code writing process and kind of what goes on in the U.S., we typically use the IBC, which is created by the International Code Council. Right now, a lot of people are using the 2018 IBC. And part of that, so there's a section in there, we have chapter 16 that is really associated with structural design and then some following chapters associated with different materials. But for the most part, we are focusing on chapter 16 and chapter 16 of the IBC references the ASC 7, which is a document that's put on by the American Society of Civil Engineers. So that actually is brought in as part of the governing code. And the ASE just released their latest 2022 code. And a part of that is the seismic design. And I know that's your area of expertise. So can you maybe fill us in on a few of these updates to the ASE 722 seismic design? Yeah. First of all, what, what you said is substantially accurate. Much of the country is on 2018 IBC, but at the same time, a, much of the country is getting on the 2021 IBC. The state of California adopted it on January 1 of 23. The 21 IBC still adopts AC 716. AC 722, the document you are talking about, will be adopted by the 2024 IBC, which will be adopted in California in early 2026. So design by AC 722 is a, a, a few years away yet, but the changes are big and, and we definitely need to come to grips with the changes. Some of the bigger changes, we have had six site classes, as we call them, soil types in seismic design for a long time, definitely all the IBC editions. Now we will have nine site classes, but there are three additional site classes, B, C, C, D, D, E. Then in a major departure from the past, we will not have any site coefficients. 
soil modified ground motion will be obtained directly from ASCE's hazard tool as it is called. Up until AC716, the hazard tool had to be purchased. Now it is free and we can get all the environmental loads from that one place. So we will get soil modified seismicity, seismic ground motion parameters directly. We have had since the late 80s, I would say, two-point spectrum for design. Design spectrum gives us the seismic design force as a function of the period of the structure and, and the period itself is a function of the mass and the stiffness of the structure. The spectrum we used all along was defined at two different periods. Now we are going to multi-period spectrum which is defined at 22 different periods. So it's much more accurate and there are complications that go with it. Beyond the ground motion part, something I'm very happy about in the structural systems table, we now have two new systems. We have specifically recognized reinforced concrete ductile couple wall system, as we call it, and also a steel concrete couple composite plate shear wall system. It is a mouthful. So one is a concrete system coupled uh, shear walls of concrete. Another is a composite system, steel plates with concrete in between, and those plate shear walls are coupled. So these are, I believe, very, very significant additions to uh, what we have had all along. I grew up and I was taught from the beginning that dynamic analysis is the way to go when we do seismic design. Equivalent static force procedure is kind of tolerated provided certain conditions are met. But now there is recognition that equivalent lateral force procedure for most purposes is at least as good as dynamic analysis. So whereas our codes and, and AC7 forced us to do dynamic analysis under many circumstances, now under AC722, equivalent static force procedure will be allowed basically all the time. This is a major, major departure from the past. The structural irregularity tables that were introduced in 1988 Uniform Building Code. We have a table of horizontal irregularities. We have a table of vertical irregularities. Both have undergone major changes among the horizontal irregularities. Torsional irregularity will be dealt with quite a bit differently. The re-entrant corner irregularity, the definition is changing rather significantly. The diaphragm discontinuity irregularity, the definition is changing. Then in the vertical, there is mass irregularity that has been <laughs> deleted. So without going into too many details, but there are significant changes in the irregularities table. We have a separate diaphragm design procedure for 
one story, we typically call them rigid wall flexible diaphragm systems. So these are like the big box buildings. The walls are rigid, the diaphragms are flexible because the spans are large. And for one story buildings of that kind, we have quite a different diaphragm design procedure in, in AC722. These are some of the big ones that <laughs> I can think of off the top of my head. The non-structural components, chapter 13 of AC7, huge changes. <laughs> it's it's in, in some ways, it's a different chapter. The horizontal design force for components, the formula is very significantly different from the one we have been using. So we have some time to get familiar with and get adjusted to the changes, but the changes are big and the changes are not confined to the seismic area. <laughs> Basically, every part of AC722 is different. Many, many other loads, snow for instance, very big changes in AC722. I mean, this kind of gets off topic a little bit, but I think there's also improvements to tornado design or some parameters for tornado design in the 722 as well. There is for the first time tornado design introduced in AC722. We didn't have that. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know, like you said, in the past, we as designers have had to pay to use the hazard maps from ASCE 7. So for those of you that are not structural engineers, this is a website that we go to that we put in our latitude and longitude and we get our seismic design parameters that are site specific from that. And now that's free, which is amazing. And like you said, we're not going to be implementing this probably for a couple of years because jurisdictions are not going to adopt this code for a couple of years, but it's out. And so we can start learning about it. But the other very cool thing is that the site soil class, right? This is based on the material or the soil that is there. And a lot of times we're getting that information from the geotechnical engineer. So now that this has all been surveyed per se and put into this hazard map tool. Now that kind of takes out one more step, I guess, where we can put this all into one software program to figure out what our seismic design parameters are so that we can pull those out of the, the program to apply to our seismic design. Well, the geotechnical engineer will still be needed to figure out the site class and, and for other reasons. But we used to get ground motion parameters for a benchmark site class, let us say. And then we applied site coefficients to convert them to ground motion parameters for our site class. So that will not be needed anymore. There are no coefficients. If we know our site class, we will get soil modified properties directly from the hazard tool. Okay, makes sense. And then the other thing that was very fascinating is the fact that most buildings can fall under the equivalent lateral force procedure, which is more simplified than the dynamic approach. <laughs> and then adding new systems. So we have to use for whatever the lateral resisting system is, there is a response modification factor that is applied to that, that we have to use to figure out what our 
base shear, what we have to design for, for our seismic loads. You know, there's so many new systems coming out too. So it's, it seems like these are probably two prevalent systems that are becoming more popular. So instead of having to try and make it fit into something else in the table, creating the new categories, that sounds great as well. I'm not sure this applies anymore, but it's something that I had a few years ago. So it used to be the case that ASCE had a table for these response modification factors, and then IBC had a table as well. And sometimes they were a little bit different. Is that still the case? Or is IBC now referring completely to ASCE for that? Yeah, starting back in 2006, IBC. It's now everything by reference. There is hardly any modification of ASC 7 seismic provisions in the IBC anymore. So the R factors come from ASC 7 period. Yeah, they are not modified by the IBC. Okay. Have not been for a long time. (laughs) Good question. Yeah, there was a time when we had slightly different tables. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. All right. This is more for maybe our general listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with structural engineering. What are some key concepts for seismic design? So first off, for those of the listeners that maybe are not familiar with this, so I live in Iowa, you know, we have to do a comparison, but we don't get into the nuts and bolts of seismic design that much just because we're not an active seismic region. But seismic earthquake two terms that are synonymous. It's a lateral design, horizontal loads that are applied to the building. A lot of times they're compared with wind loads to see which one controls. But if you could just give us a brief synopsis of what seismic design is, that would be great. There are two key aspects, just two. (laughs) Okay, first is that unlike wind, seismic forces are not applied forces. Wind actually applies a force on our building. What an earthquake does, in an earthquake, the foundation underneath our building all of a sudden starts moving every which way, every which way. And unless our building is very short and stocky, it cannot readily follow the movement of the foundation. So it lags behind and then tries to catch up. Now, in this attempt to catch up with the movement of the foundation, the masses, which is at the floor levels and the roof level, they now start moving sideways. They experience displacements, velocities, accelerations, and we all know mass times acceleration is a force. So inertia forces are developed where the masses are at the floor level and the roof level, slabs which are in seismic design, a slab is subject to out-of-plane bending due to gravity. When the same slab is subject to lateral forces, sideways forces, they bend in their own plane and then we call them diaphragms. So in an earthquake, inertia forces are set up in the roof level and the floor level diaphragms. And it is our job as engineers to bring those forces down to the ground where all forces ultimately belong. So the inertia forces have to be transferred from the diaphragms to 
what we call the vertical elements of the seismic force resisting system, the shear walls and the frames. They have to bring them down to the foundation and the foundation will have to take them down to the soil. So we are fashioning the load paths to take the inertia forces down from the diaphragms to the ground. And we like to have multiple load paths so that if one is compromised, we have other ways for the loads to go down to the foundation. So this is, I think, key concept number one, that we are not dealing with applied forces. We are dealing with forces that originate within the structure and we are providing load paths for them. The second concept is that if we want our structure to remain elastic, meaning damage free, elastic means no damage associated with the movement of the structure. The earthquake passes, we get our structure back intact. So if we want our structure to respond elastically to the earthquake ground motion of the level we designed for, I, I will call it the design earthquake. Then we would have to build a lot of strength into our structure. That would be expensive and that is largely unnecessary unless we are, we are designing a nuclear power plant or something like that. So we allow damage or inelastic deformations, which mean they are not recoverable deformations. There is damage associated with it. After the earthquake, there will be damage to be repaired. But we do allow inelastic deformations in the design earthquake. However, we don't want to kill people, obviously. So we absolutely actively prevent collapse of the structure, not just in the design earthquake, but in an earthquake that is roughly one and a half times as big, so-called maximum considered earthquake. Now, in order to make sure that although we are allowing inelastic deformations in certain parts of certain members, that the structure will not collapse on us in the maximum considered earthquake. The inelastic deformations will have to be within the inelastic deformation capacities of those members. Inelastic deformation capacity is how much inelastic deformation the member can undergo without losing gravity load carrying capacity. Okay. So inelastic deformations that we allow will have to be within inelastic deformation capacity. Inelastic deformation capacity comes from proper detailing of the structural members and joints. So earthquake design has always been a two-part affair. Part one is the strength that we provide to our structure and part two is detailing to come up with the inelastic deformation capacity that will accommodate the deformations, inelastic deformations that will result if we go with a lower strength than will give us elastic response. Now, earthquake design is essentially a trade-off between strength and inelastic deformability. 
we can go with a high strength level in which case we will not need fancy detailing we will do what we call ordinary detailing or we can go with a low strength level in which case we will need pretty fancy detailing which we call special detailing or there is an in-between choice in our codes we do not allow unrestricted trade-off but it is still a trade-off so there are two key concepts <laughs> one is that earthquake forces are inertia forces that generate within the structure where the masses are and secondly in earthquake design is a trade-off between strength and inelastic deformability and the bridge between the two is the R value so the R value that you mentioned the lower the R the higher the strength level the lower the need for ductility or fancy detailing and the higher the R the lower the strength level and the larger the need the for, for fancy detailing so to me those are the two key concepts okay yeah no that makes sense and the analogy that i'm thinking of as you're talking is maybe someone that like a person like when you're riding a skateboard or in some sort of motion or even like surfing like you're you're trying to keep your body straight and your body is wanting to move in different directions horizontally and that's similar to what's happening with a building in an earthquake the ground is moving the building is trying to stay stationary and it is not able to <laughs> so it's a leg and that leg is proportional to the height of the building because the higher up the longer it's going to take for it to move horizontally so this was the multiple periods that you were talking about earlier of the structure and capturing kind of what's going to happen with that so like when you have a higher r value it, to me it's like you're kind of dialing in that design so you're saying you're going to be able to dial that design in more efficiently but if you're using a higher strength then you have a lower r value and to me it seems like it's a more conservative approach you're using the lower r value you're using strength of the material not so much the connections it probably is conservative but in high seismic areas we do not allow that option we like some inelastic deformability because the big uncertainty in earthquake design is the ground motion <laughs> with all the advances we still do not know what will come hit our structure so in high seismic areas we do not want to go with all strength we like to have some inelastic deformation capacity no matter what yeah that makes sense so we as structural engineers are designing structures for seismic events and putting in lateral systems to support seismic events but a lot of times this is the big event so the likelihood of that happening it's not happening every day right so it's a once in a lifetime once every 150 year event or whatever it might be that changes so much but you stated this so well so many times instead of making that pristine after an event like that, we are making it safe. So there might be some building damage in these events because that's what makes sense from a design standpoint because that's what's economically feasible for the building. But our whole goal in what we do as professionals is to protect the health and safety of the general public. So that is paramount 
first and foremost. But I'm moving from there to the earthquake that happened in Turkey. And I think it's also very important to note that the buildings in Turkey had been there for many, many, many years. And codes are different. Cultures are different. Funds are different. It is very different there than it is in the U.S. So Turkey is very different than the U.S. as far as building codes. And again, these buildings had been there for many, many years. There was a very substantial earthquake that happened in February of this year. I think the main earthquake was 7.8 on the Richter scale. I think there were 55,000 casualties and I think 130,000 people were injured and 50 thousand buildings were damaged. So I know you just got back from there. And I am just curious to, I guess, hear about what your observations were and things that you learned from kind of the backside of something like this. Yeah, I have been going to sites of earthquakes since 1985. And I have been probably to a dozen of these major earthquake sites afterwards. What I saw in Turkey was in many ways worse than anything I had seen before. There were two features that were quite unique. One is that in almost every other event, it was much more localized, like Mexico earthquake 1985. Mexico City is where most of the damage was. There was a little bit in the central area, but In Turkey, this was an extensive area where there were 11 significant cities, a population of something like 14 million people. The entire area was affected. Secondly, this I do not think, well, it it probably did happen in Christchurch, but but not so quickly. There were two major events, a 7.8, as you mentioned, which happened in the middle of the night, which is always significant because people die in their beds. And within 10 hours, there was a 7.5, which is also huge, not very far from the original epicenter. So these two were, I would say, unique features. There were a couple of factors that are inescapable. One is that there is wanton disregard for compliance with building codes. There has been over the last 20 years, huge building boom led by Mr. Edwin. I think the housing was needed, but build and don't worry about regulations. You know, that was not needed. So by build, don't worry about regulations, that probably indicates that a structural engineer wasn't involved with designing the buildings. <laughs> there was typically probably an engineer involved, but the developer calls the shots, not the engineer, to put it very plainly and, and crudely. And the qualification of the engineers many times would be questionable. Anybody graduating from any of the 130 or so engineering schools, many of them private, many of them new, can design buildings. They pay a fee to, I forget the name of the organization, it is like ASCE. They pay a fee and they have a certificate and they go and design. There is no qualifying exam or anything like that. 
But much more importantly, before the 2018 election, Mr. Erdogan issued an amnesty under which a building owner, however much in violation of the building code his building might be, could pay a fine and have his building legitimized. He didn't have to touch the building, no repair was needed. So the government collected a lot of money, the buildings remained as defective as they ever were and earthquakes have an uncanny knack of finding out weaknesses in buildings. The other thing that I think was a big factor, I was there after the 99 earthquake, the last big earthquake, which was, this was a long way from Istanbul in southeastern Turkey. The thing that I didn't realize until I went there, and this was not the case in 99, so a developer will get hold of a piece of land and he will build four or six copies of the same building on that piece of land. And these are typically six-story apartment buildings that have at least 24 apartments in them. So a mistake that will bring a building down or cause major damage to a building would be repeated four to six times. It will not just be one building. So whole neighborhoods were full of buildings that maybe standing up. Standing up is actually worse than <laughs> collapsed buildings because they have to be demolished at considerable cost before you can rebuild. So yeah, the official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much, three times as many. And I believe that, I mean, I mean, seeing what I saw, 50,000, 55,000 casualties is not believable. And Mr. Erdogan has said he will rebuild in a year. I have no idea how that can be possible. It, it, is, a, it is a gigantic task. They have removed much of the debris. They are removing more debris and, and demolishing buildings. Rebuilding maybe has started, but you know, it, it will take a lot of time. Yeah, injury and death is, is, is one thing. A lot of people are displaced. Out of the 14 million, at least 1.4, 1.5 million have left the area. And we saw plenty of people in. They're not exactly tents. They're a little better than that, but, but temporary housing, you know. And anyway, it's a, it's a tragedy beyond belief. And Turkish codes are good. And, and they have been improving. There was nothing wrong with the codes, but compliance was completely lacking. So that would be my conclusion from, you know, we saw things that we have seen so many times before. We know if you do this, <laughs> that happens. So that was confirmed. But the main lesson was that it is necessary to comply with codes. Yeah. So do you think after this, like, has there been any talk with the jurisdiction as far as how they are going to enforce the code? Do you think there'll have be tighter enforcement after this? I would sure hope. There was an election last Sunday, I think 14th of April, that resulted in a runoff. I forgot the date. So in early May, they will know whether Mr. Erdogan will continue or a new government will come. How the rebuilding will be done will depend on 
who comes into power. This is what I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's important to note, too, that a lot of these casualties can be prevented by adequate structural engineering, by adequate seismic design, just like we were talking about earlier. I mean, this is a very substantial earthquake. And like you said, back to back, plus the aftershocks. So a lot of things happening there. But life can be sustained in those events, in those buildings with the proper detailing. There might be some damage, but at least lives can be spared. Absolutely, absolutely. This is why it is such a shame that there were documents that told them how to do it and those were disregarded. It's too much greed, too much. Uh, Yes. Well, I think that brings up another question too. So like looking forward, I think this is maybe more a question from the general public, but can earthquakes be predicted? I do not know a lot about the subject, but my overall impression is for all practical purposes, no. Predicted to the point that you can evacuate beforehand, no, I I do not think we are there or will be there in the near term future. There can be statements can be made like the fault that broke in this Turkish earthquake, the East Anatolian fault. Seismologists have known that an earthquake was due, but due may may mean tomorrow, it may mean 10 years from today. So there are faults, let's say in California, that are very closely monitored. The movements are being measured and there maybe the seismologists can tell you something may happen within a short period of time. But but beyond that, I do not believe that earthquake prediction is possible. You know, a lot of people believe that it can be, but I'm not one of them. Yeah, <laughs> I totally see that. It seems that maybe probability can be determined, but uh, exact pinpoints cannot happen. I mean, we all learn in probably junior high science about geology and tectonic plates. So wherever plates are coming together, there's going to be a higher likelihood for earthquakes because there's movement. Things are moving all of the time. But like you said, in the world of geology, 10 years is a blip. So it's it's real hard to pinpoint things. Yeah. And, and what makes it the most difficult? You know, we talk about earthquakes happening along tectonic plate boundaries. Yes, vast majority of them do. But then smack in the middle of very stable tectonic plates, there have been earthquakes. So we can never say an earthquake is not going to happen in such and such place. You know, it can be Des Moines, Iowa, it can be Miami, Florida. All we can say is that the chance of an earthquake happening is very low. Low to the point that it's not worth worrying about. We, we have other problems typically, <laughs> you know, in Miami it's hurricanes. So it, it doesn't make any sense to worry about earthquakes. But you can still not say that it cannot happen. <laughs> so see, it's a question of very low probability. Yeah, so we're kind of talking about pinpointing things and knowing things like to the very detailed bit, like we just talked about, is not possible with earthquake predictability. But this brings me to... Thinking about, I guess, earthquake design software and, you know, we have as codes are increasing in complexity and as we are able to 
kind of narrow in what these design loads need to be for specific buildings, our design software is also getting much more complicated and maybe a little bit of a gap between the user interface and the output. Some of that control is almost given over to the program and trusting in it. And we as practicing engineers need to have kind of a gut feel or kind of the framework for knowing what to expect from that output. But I guess, how do you mitigate that when you're training new people? How are you making sure that these complex software programs are being used properly and accurately? I do not have specific surefire answers, but it, it is a huge problem. And I believe that if we are going to do it right, we have to start at the university level. Our teaching has to emphasize the fundamentals. We need to talk in terms of forces moving from here to there, that an engineer ideally has to be able to visualize this. So university is where it needs to belong, it needs to begin. Secondly, when I started off in my career, there was mentoring. You know, I worked with somebody much more senior who had a lot of sense. And after years of working closely with him, I I think I developed some of that sense, you know, and I do not know any other way of transmitting it. This is a tragedy now, you know, people are recruited, they are expected to produce from the next day on. There is very little opportunity to sit and think and learn. This somehow we have to inject into the system. There has to be recognition that a fresh graduate has a lot of learning to do. And yeah, production is fine, but he has to be mentored into thinking in basic terms. Without that, things can go very wrong. Again, the, the, the words are basics, fundamentals, you know, you, you, you have to look at things in fundamental terms, not in details. Details follow once the fundamentals are grasped. So I do not know that it is a good answer, but I believe that it's a twofold answer that we have to start at the university and, and the mentoring has to be present for young engineers. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I do feel like the fundamentals, like if those are down, then you can get to like 80 or 90% accuracy. And then the details is the rest. But if the fundamentals are off, you can be off by an order of magnitude. And that is detrimental. Yeah, I'll date myself a bit. But in our time, we had slide rules. Most people have not seen those. This is how we did multiplication, division, etc. A slide rule did not put the decimal place for you. So you multiply two numbers. The answer was 10030. You didn't know it was 100.3 or 10 point <laughs> or, or one point, you know. So you had to have judgment. You had to know what kind of a number you were expecting. Otherwise, <laughs> so we had an innate sense of what we were expecting. I'm not advocating going back to the slide rule, but that sense needs to come back. You know, are we expecting 100 or a 1,000 or a 100,000 or a million? You know, Mm -hmm. that sense has to be there. At least an idea of the order of magnitude. Yeah, and I think that comes from mentorship too, right? And and being able to get strong in the fundamentals, yes. Okay, so what is the most fascinating thing in earthquake design to you? 
I think the most fascinating thing is the two things that I said, the two key points that we are dealing with inertia forces originating within the structure, that we are doing this two-part thing. We are not only providing strength, but we are also providing inelastic deformability. Once that is grasped, everything falls in place. You know, everything that our codes require us to do begin to make sense. That to me is fascinating. Also fascinating is the amount that we have learned. If you go back to past earthquakes, Northridge was a huge learning opportunity. There have been big ones. 1971 San Fernando was the first big one. That was a huge learning opportunity. We made far-reaching changes to our building codes which have done us so much good. 94 Northridge was a major opportunity. We learned, we made adjustments. So we are at a point where if we comply with our codes, we can expect to be in reasonably good shape. You know, that itself to me is fascinating. We are dealing with so much uncertainty in the ground motion, and yet we are able to deliver structures that will perform for us, at least will ensure life safety. That also to me is, is a fascinating part that we are able to do as well as we are able to do. Yeah, that is very fascinating to learn, to see all these events happen and then learn from them. Okay, so if you were to give Seismic Design a theme song, what would it be? (laughs) I'm not into theme songs, but the one that I chose is What a Wonderful World. And and I'll tell you why. (laughs) I'll read the few lines that I think are very relevant. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They will learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. (laughs) Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. So that the key lines are, they will learn much more than I'll ever know. (laughs) I believe that cancer will be with us. I believe that earthquakes will be with us. But I think we can keep cancer from killing people. I think we can keep earthquakes from killing people. And the key are the babies (laughs) who will learn much more than I'll ever know. (laughs) That's the key. I love that. And the words, the lyrics from that song tie into what you were just telling us about the most fascinating thing about earthquake design like it ties into that so I think that's beautiful and I think that is so inspiring too right like all of us like we hand the torch to someone else and they get to run with it and it's going to blow our mind what they're able to do with it too ah love that so SK what do you do to recharge when you're not doing seismic design and traveling all over the world to assess earthquakes Yeah, my recreation is listening to music and reading books. My mother tongue is Bengali, which is spoken by roughly 1.7 million people in Bangladesh and roughly 1 million in West Bengal, so it's a lot of people. Bengal produced a great poet who lived from 1861 to 1941. He remains very, very important to this 2.7 million Bengalis. 
I read his poetry, I listen to his songs, and you see that he was at one with nature, and he talks about joy and sorrow and, and, and pain, a lot of pain, but through it all, the theme is that life is worthwhile, that, that life has a purpose, and, and that individual lives integrate into a purpose for life on this universe. So something like that, I'm not saying it well. It's fascinating, it's, it's, it's uplifting. There is no pettiness in anything he has ever written. <laughs> so it's all looking at joys and sorrows, that human existence, human reactions, but, but always connected to nature and lives of others. None of us are by ourselves, you know, we are part of a human community. And I have needed him since my undergraduate days. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. It's the depth of the human emotion, right? And the interconnectedness of all of us. Right, right. And that is important to to think about. For sure. Well, Dr. Ghosh, thank you so much for being here today. I feel like we were able to explore deep into seismic design, which was very fascinating. And I think I learned a lot. So that's awesome. And I think the listeners did too. And I also appreciate you sharing some of those personal things with us too. I think that's very enjoyable. And I think it's also very important for people to see that as structural engineers, we have other interests and we have, yeah, feelings and things that we like to do outside of number crunching. Thank you, Carrie. It, it really has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. <laughs> We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past, 
and guidepost for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender.